0: That's investher, H-E-R, con.com, promo code 100, best ever to get $100 off your ticket. First off, I wouldn't say anything unless I was ready and willing to back it up. Because once you say something and you don't back it up with action, then every other word out of your mouth falls on deaf ears. If you're a passive investor wanting to learn more about questions to ask sponsors in order to qualify the opportunities, in order to qualify the sponsor, in order to qualify the market that the property is in, then go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. My team and I created this site just for you so that there is a free resource available to you to learn about the questions to ask, the things to think through prior to investing in deals. So go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. It's a free resource for you that was made just for you. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And we got follow along Friday today. Theo Hicks, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing well and looking forward to our conversation. Follow along Friday as a refresher. Best ever listeners, it's stuff that we have learned throughout the previous week. And today in particular, I've taken three lessons I learned from the interviews I did last week. I did seven or eight interviews last week for this podcast. So here are three takeaways. First has to do with finding off-market deals for really anyone, but in particular, multifamily. And when I say multifamily, I'm talking like 20, I guess this works regardless of the size of the units. But in particular, it's probably going to work with units 15 to 150, because that tends to be owners who are private owners and not raising capital. Or more likely, it'll be private owners, not ones raising capital who have a lot of people to answer to. So here's a five-step process that Ola Dantas talked about. Ola is the founder, CEO at Dwellin, and he's a multifamily syndicator based in Baltimore, Maryland. I always like giving a shout out to Baltimore, Maryland, because Colleen and I went there last year, or maybe two years ago, loved it. And I don't think Baltimore gets enough good press. And if you have a chance to go to Baltimore, go check out Baltimore. But the five-step process that he mentioned, he didn't describe it as a five-step process. But after I was reviewing my notes from our conversation, I realized it was a five-step process for finding off-market deals is as follows. Step one, well, he has a database that he is subscribed to, and he uses CoStar. And depending on your budget, CoStar could be pricey or could not be if you think about the value of what a deal could bring in your life. But regardless, however you think about it, he a database CoStar. If you don't use a database like CoStar, then you can do it manually. And there's a process for doing it. But nonetheless, one CoStar, he gets owner's information from there. Then two, he scrubs the list for properties that he's looking for because you will get a large grouping of properties and then you narrow it down based on what type of property you're particularly looking for. Then three, he goes to White Pages, the premium model. I personally have not used White Pages, but White Pages, the website and the service has come up multiple times this week, coincidentally and my conversations with people who are tracking down phone numbers and contact information for owners. And again, you will have to do some scrubbing there too to get the right phone numbers. And some of them are like phone numbers from 10 years ago, but this seems to be the best service for that to get phone numbers. So one co-star have a service to scrub the list, make sure that you've got it to where you want it based on what you're purchasing, your price point, the type of property, et cetera, the area three, go to white pages, get a subscription there and get the phone numbers for it. You make the phone calls. And then five, he actually reaches out to people on LinkedIn too because he has the owner's information. He'll send them a message. And then what's not in this five-step process is obviously the follow-up. And that will likely generate more leads or more transactions than doing the five-step process one time. So continuing to follow up, having a database to track that, et cetera. But it is a nice five-step process that he laid out. And I wanted to share that for anyone who's having a challenging time finding deals. Well, here's a five-step process for you to go undertake.
1: Yeah. And step two, scrubbing the list. That's something that's important for really no matter what type of lead generation strategy of pursuing. And I was talking to a client this week and he was saying, well, what happens if I find 50 deals or 30 deals in one week? How do I decide which ones are a top priority? And in that sense too, you have to scrub that list. It's when need to figure out exactly what type of property you want to buy, what size property you want to buy, the cost, the class, anything unique about the property. That way, if your brokers are sending you a ton of deals or you're pulling a list from CoStar, you're not looking at every single 50 unit. You're only looking at the 50 units that are class B they are in a specific neighborhood based off of some demographic factor. So that'll save you obviously a lot of time. Obviously it takes a time investment up front to do that, but it'll save you time from getting unqualified leads or you know, getting really excited about someone calling you then you realizing that it's a deal that doesn't even meet your investment criteria because it's either too nice or not nice enough. And something else I said before when you're saying how this strategy is really good for properties that are between 15 and 100 units, Something else that's interesting too about real estate is that there's really no one size fit all strategy for finding deals. And I was just kind of taking a step back because obviously, if you're going to be doing something where you're reaching out, you want to find mountain pop investors or people who actually own the property and aren't raising capital, then it's not going to be worth looking at 300 plus unit buildings because, yeah, sure, maybe just 0.1% of the people actually are buying those themselves. Whereas it's better to focus on those smaller properties because of the percentage of people that are actually. Mom and pop owners are going to be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting too. You can kind of apply that to anything. If you're underwriting a deal, you're not going to underwrite a four unit deal the same way you're going to underwrite a 150 unit deal. So, all these rule of thumbs are fine, I guess. But if you want to be more accurate, you really can't follow those rule of thumbs because what works for a smaller building is not going to work for a medium building, which is not going to work for a larger building. And it's not going to work for retail. Office. And so I just think it's just, that's just something that is interesting. And I thought of it when you were mentioning how this only works for a specific size range of properties.
0: Right. And I think if someone were to take this approach and one of our properties landed on their list and they were to find my phone number on white pages and call me up, well, I wouldn't answer because I don't answer calls that their phone number saved in my yeah, phone. Do I. <laughs> and then if they leave a message, then I probably would delete it and not do anything with it. And then if they called me again, i just block it. Just mm-hmm. as simple as that. But my business is set up differently from if I personally own the property with only my money and I didn't have any other properties or maybe I had just a couple because my financial situation would likely be different where I'd be more interested in selling to a random person that reaches out to us who I don't know their track record. I don't know what type of credibility they have. I don't have anyone who knows them, so there's no connection. Because when you go with a random person, I would say there's an increased risk of them not performing and you spending a lot of time or some time with them, and it's a waste. Whereas with our deals, we go through a process to vet buyers, a broker. We work with brokers, they vet buyers, and it's just a lot cleaner. We do have groups who reach out to us via email. Hey, we're so and so and they look to be qualified, but then ninety-nine out of a hundred times, nothing happens Mm -hmm. as a result of it. And it's just a waste of everyone's time. So a group like ours is very unlikely to respond to these types of messages, but If you reach an owner who owns 150 unit and maybe they're looking to sell this largest property they have in their personal portfolio because they're getting up there in age or they are just done with it or something, you might hit them at the right time. And the best thing that could happen if someone reaches out to someone on my team is we happen to be selling at that moment in time and then all we're going to do is send them to our broker. So it's just like it doesn't really help them out because they're just now aware of an on-market deal where there's a broker commission involved. Yeah. All right, number two is my dear friend, Carla Blumenthal. I've known her for 10 to 15 years, and she has a heart of gold, and she is very talented. She coaches high-achieving men to master their emotions So she's all about emotional fitness. I worked with her in an advertising agency in New York City and we just stayed in touch and really good friend. And I'm actually going to her wedding next month and interviewed her on the podcast. And she gave a process for developing emotional fitness. It's a six-step process. I won't go into the whole process, but I will say that she talked about how emotions lead to actions negative or positive, and actions lead to results. And it's something that Tony Robbins talks about, and it's something that it is important enough to reinforce on this show, thinking about where our emotional home is. So where do we spend most of the time emotionally? And a good analogy is when you see on the news, which I don't watch the news, but if you read on a blog or whatever, that there's a hurricane that hits an area over and over and over again, or some natural disaster that hits an area over and over and over again, a lot of people wonder why the hell do people keep moving back to that same area when they know it's highly likely there's going to be some natural disaster that will hit it again since it has hit it many, many other times. And the thing is that, that thought process can be hypocritical if we as a person go back to our same emotional home over and over again when it's not giving us the results that we're looking to get. So for example, if my emotional home is lackadaisical or aloof during the day, then I'm not gonna get the things done that need to get done to run the businesses that I've got. And it's important to just do a self-check on where is my emotional home exactly? What do I typically go back to? What is my default emotion throughout the day? Not when I'm super into a particular thing or not when I'm pissed off about something. But generally speaking, what is my emotional home and how does that serve me? And what could be the disadvantages of that emotional state? And Just doing a self-check on that because as she pointed out, the emotions that we have and the emotions we experience more regularly, they lead to the actions that we take and then those actions will lead to results both positive and negative. So just doing a self-check on that.
1: Yeah, I remember back when I was with Coach T, he discussed that process as you're talking about. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it starts with the thoughts. And then it, that thought turns into emotion and emotion turns into a strategy and the strategy turns into action or something like that. It's probably not right, but it's something like that. Because if you're talking about your default position. Yeah. Something that I learned a long time ago was from a podcast I was listening to about emotional intelligence. And I can't remember specifically what it's called, but I think if you just Google chart of emotions or something, it kind of breaks down the six or eight main categories of emotion from on the far left being you're pretty bad shape to the far right being super high consciousness. And the exercise was something on the lines of, hey, this takes to take some time, but every hour or every half an hour or something, just taking out a notebook and then writing down what emotion you're feeling in that specific moment and then write down what you're doing at that time. And uh, what else was it? I think it was those two things and kind of just like write about how you feel and just do that every hour for like a week. And that's one way to figure out where you're spending most of your time at. Now, as you mentioned, Joe, you might have something going on that week that might necessarily make you not in your default or your base position or your home position, but it just gives you an idea of what emotional state you're spending most of your time in. So obviously, if you look at that after a week and realize that you're away for 16 hours and eight of those hours, you're on the far left of that emotional chart, then you probably reevaluate what you're doing. Whereas if you're realizing, hey, like what I'm doing this specific task, I'm always further to the right on that chart. Maybe you could do more of that depending on what that is. Again, I can't remember exactly what the exercise is called or how to find it, but it's basically it's a chart. It'll have like at the top, like depressed or angry, content happy, and ecstatic, or something like that. And it has other emotional words below each of those uh, categories.
0: Thank you for did. that. Yeah, I just did a, a quick Google search. I searched for a chart of emotions and there's all sorts of images that come up that will give you a chart. I don't know if the exact one that you're describing. Looks like the seven main ones that they have is happy, surprised, bad, fearful, angry, disgusted, and sad. And then they've got subsets of each of those seven. Yeah. And that is a print worthy chart. So thank you. I will be printing it out. I'm going to put it on my wall and see what I want to do with it. But I recognize there's a lot of value there. And I'm going to immerse myself with that. And really, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the happy, interesting. So there's only one, maybe two positive ones here. Happy and surprised. Others are bad, <laughs> fearful, angry, disgusted. Actually, I don't know if I'm going to print this one out. i find a different one. <laughs> I think I'll print a different one. A different one. <laughs> I'm like, Wait a second. It's all mostly negative. But I think it's being intentional about trying to experience certain empowering emotions throughout the day. And just by reading different emotions, it will help me be more intentional about experiencing them.
1: It's one more note on that, and then you can move on about the list. Because if you find the right one, something that was interesting is, for example, under happy, they'll have like all the subgroups and you'll realize that maybe happy is not the best idea, but let's say disgusted or sad you will really like emotions under that because you wouldn't necessarily automatically associate with being sad or disgusted. So it's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that's what that emotion meant. That's what that mm-hmm. feeling meant. I think the whole hold our purpose is to increase your emotional awareness, realize what you're feeling right now, what that actually means. Is it good or is it bad?
0: And then lastly, we got Ronnie Elias. He is the lead asset manager for Town Center Partners He's worked on litigation cases reaching over $9.5 billion. So he's an attorney and he's also been a real estate investor throughout his life. And in fact, now his firm represents real estate investors and others outside of real estate too, who go into a litigation, but they cannot afford to carry out all the litigation process because they don't have the money to do so. They might be going up against some big fish and his firm will pay the costs in exchange for equity in the proceeds should they be victorious. And what I found interesting with that conversation, it was interesting to hear a business model. But one thing I want to point out, I should say, during this conversation today is He's been around the block, so he experienced 2008 and he had some good deals and he had some bad deals in 2008. And what I want to point out here is that he talked about how you work with banks when you're in default on a loan. So if any best ever listener finds themselves defaulting on a loan and having to work it out with a bank or attempting to work it out with a bank, then he gave some tips and they are as follows. One is to have a good cop, bad cop relationship with the bank. So someone on your team be the good cop and someone on your team be the bad cop. And I asked him which one he was and he said he was usually the bad cop. I said, well, as the bad cop, when you're trying to work it out with the bank and you're in default, what could you say to the bank so that you're putting pressure on them when in reality they're putting pressure on you because they're trying to foreclose on you? And he said, well, the goal is to save the asset because they're not in the business of owning real estate. And, you know, we've all heard that, right? But he went a little bit further. He said, first off, I wouldn't say anything unless I was ready and willing to back it up. Because once you say something and you don't back it up with action, then every other word out of your mouth falls on deaf ears. So what I would say to them is, we're going to make this a long, arduous journey. Today, you're getting a payment. And all we're doing is we're asking for an extension. But right now, if you're unhappy with whatever the amount is they're getting, $100,000 a month or $10,000 a month, whatever the payment is, if you're unhappy with $10,000 a month because I'm not making the full payment, then imagine how it's going to feel when we're not paying you anything. And imagine what it's going to be like when you have to go through this whole process with us because we're going to make it a very long process. So he would put pressure on that way, and then the good cop, usually he said his attorney would be more solution-oriented. Well, not that he wasn't being solution-oriented, but he would add a ray of sunshine to it. And he'd tell him, for every dollar you're spending on this, your opportunity cost, it's like 5 or $6 because of the money that you could be making and reinvesting it, et cetera. So that was his process. And he did say separately, or, or on a related note, should it go into default, then they've always got an unofficial cousin Vinny that you're going to be working with and that person's incentivized to get as much money for the bank as possible. There's some sort of compensation structure and it's not a bad thing because everyone's got to get paid, but it's just something to be aware of that the person who's doing the workout with you, they have an incentive to get as much for the bank financially. So it's just something to keep in mind.
1: That's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. While you were talking there, because I know we're getting off in a few minutes, but I wanted to mention, I found the chart. I listen to podcasts and take crazy notes. I'm just looking at this now, but it's called the Sedona method, S-E-D-O-N-A. And it's all about being in emotional states that are resourceful to you. So I, I know you'd like that. Yeah. And So this is from least resourceful to most resourceful. And again, there's subcategories within it, but it's apathy, grief, fear, lust, anger, pride, courage, acceptance, and peace. And the exercise is to sit there for 30 minutes and then label your emotional state every hour, half an hour, whenever you want to do it. So it's Sedona, S-E-D-O-N-A. You should find like a crazy chart.
0: Yeah, okay. I see it now. Awesome. Thank you. I like that one better. Moving on, so this is the
1: month of the crazy real estate laws trivia questions. <laughs> I've been looking up those. So last week's question was, what state has a city that has a law that you aren't allowed to have more than two toilets in your residential home? And the answer was Washington. So there's a city called Waldron, I guess it's an island that they don't want people doing any kind of crazy developments, big, massive houses. So they limit that by allowing you to only have essentially two bathrooms.
0: So there's some logic to it. I thought it was just some wacky thing, like you can't trip in public, something like that, that some old law, but it makes sense that they would have it. I should have Mm -hmm. thought about the island thing.
1: This week's question is there's actually two states that had this law. So I'm going to give you one of them and you have to guess the other one. So in Hawaii, it's actually illegal to perform yard work at your home on Sunday mornings. So the Hawaii, so what other state has this same law?
0: I'm going Utah.
1: Utah, all righty. So first person to get that correct, either in the YouTube comments or emailing info at Joe Fairless will receive a free copy of our first book. Lastly, the best ever apartment syndication book review of the week. This week is from Jason P., who said, I've read countless books on investing, real estate syndication, raising private money, etc." Not only does this book explain in detail A to Z on how to get started all the way through closing the deal, Joe grew through step-by-step on the exact strategy he uses and not just random information. I highly recommend to anyone looking to syndicate apartments, new or experienced. I think awesome. Jason messaged me on Pockets too. Um, oh, so.
0: cool. Well, thank you, Jason, for that and appreciate you taking time to write the review and best ever listeners. Enjoyed our conversation today, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. If you're a passive investor and want to learn more about Ashcroft Capital, the company I co-founded with my business partner, Frank, and in particular want to learn more about our strategy and how we think about the opportunities that we purchase, go to ashcroftcapital.com and click the strategy button above, and you'll be able to read through our thought process we use when we're purchasing multifamily properties. Ever wonder how the top in real estate got there? The Invest This Podcast, hosted by real estate investor Scott Bauer, interviews the top names in the industry, giving you the tips and tricks that help you catapult your real estate business to success. Find them at investthispodcast.com.